Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. Welcome to our speaker series for this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. We're so pleased to have as our speaker for today, appropriately enough, one of the nation's foremost scholars on the life and legacy of Dr. King, Dr. David Garrow. Dr. Garrow is best known for his magisterial work, Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which earned him the Pulitzer Prize at the tender age of 34. In addition to that book, he's the author of several other books about Dr. King and the civil rights movement generally, including The FBI and Martin Luther King and Protested Selma, which we were just talking about. And he was also senior advisor to PBS for the award-winning documentary series Eyes on the Prize and an accompanying book, uh, co-editor, The Eyes on the Prize, Civil Rights Reader. In addition to his numerous books and essays on civil rights and a number of other matters, including President Obama, we were just talking about that, he's taught at a number of universities, including Duke, UNC Chapel Hill, and the College of William and Mary. He earned a bachelor's degree, magna cum laude, from Wesleyan University, and his PhD from Duke. With that, please join me in welcoming Dr. David Garrow. Thank, thank you all for being here this morning. Um, it's always most appropriate to talk about Dr. King in a church setting because prior to becoming a public figure, Dr. King's whole life was formed within the church. He grew up in the family church um, and, and spent all of his formative years, up through college, up through seminary, up through graduate school, in a fundamentally religious world. And you know, when people now think of him, or for years now, think of him as a civil rights leader, um, he always thought of himself as first and foremost a pastor and a preacher. Um, growing up in Ebenezer Baptist Church, in Atlanta, you know, where his father was the pastor, his mother was the organist. Um, his whole life revolved around that church and the church family. Um, and going to seminary, going to, to graduate school to get a PhD, he has a very uh, intense focus on wanting to be as, as learned a religious leader as he could be. And when he first goes to Montgomery, Alabama to take up his, his first pastorship at, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, um, his intent is simply to be as good a minister uh, to that congregation as he can be. Um, he had no desire or intent uh, to become any sort of public figure. Um, when the women of Black Montgomery start the bus boycott in December 1955, King gets drafted to be the lead spokesperson for the community boycott because he's new to town, uh, doesn't have any factional enemies within Black Montgomery, um, and you know comes from it this you know, well-known family in Atlanta uh, with some of his colleagues, 
you know, believing that if, you know, things go badly, uh, you know, he can leave town. We can't. <laughs> um, and, and King has, has no desire um, uh, to become well-known, to become a national figure. Um, once the boycott emerges as something that's going to go, you know, months and months, not just a few days, which is the initial expectation that most of the activists had, um, King feels trapped in this leadership role and feels intense uh, emotional stress uh, about being in the public eye, uh, receiving all of these hateful threats from local white segregationists. And he has a, a, a sort of religious experience that, that both my dear late friend uh, James Cone and I both wrote about 30, 35 years ago, um, where he has this experience of, of feeling a calling uh, late one night, seated in the kitchen of the parsonage there, um, where he believes he's being told that he has to give of himself to this public role, that this is a sacrifice that, that's being asked of him. And it's that attitude that, that this, is, this is something that has been, he has been called to do. That's where Bearing the Cross, the title of my big book on him, comes from. It's, it's his phrase uh, that he uses repeatedly in sermons. Um, so he has this feeling of being drafted into a role that he had in no way sought. And it's the strength of the Montgomery black community in sustaining the boycott for a full year that makes him into a national figure uh, because the boycott itself, not him, is what's so remarkable. And it's uh, a number of his colleagues, both Southern ministers and older New York-based civil rights advocates, who then dragoon him into a larger civil rights leadership role by creating the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as something to start building a south-wide movement uh, modeled to some degree on the success in Montgomery. Now, from 1956 up till 1960, it's a fairly quiescent time in terms of civil rights activism in the South. And perchance, only in February 1960, when King himself has just moved back to Atlanta uh, from Montgomery, realizing that he's got to give of himself even more in this civil rights role, exactly that same day is when the sit-in movement starts in Greensboro, North Carolina. And so it's really the student movement in 1960-1961 that catapults King forward again as this civil rights leadership symbol of the Black South. And even back in Montgomery in 56-57, but more so come the early 60s, King is intensely self-aware that people view him, people in the wider national, international audience, view him as the leader of this effort. But he knows very well in his own mind that he's not a leader. 
He is simply the sort of representative symbol that has been picked up in the public eye to represent what truly is a mass grassroots movement in all of these different successive southern locales. So with the sit-in movement in 1960, with the Freedom Rides in 1961, with the local campaigns across the South that build up to Birmingham in April and May of 1963, again and again, the energy, the initiative, just as in Montgomery, is coming from local black communities who call in King as this symbolic assistance. And so King, again and again, realizes that it's black college students or Fred Shuttlesworth, the most courageous of the black ministers in Birmingham, who are really pushing things forward. And he has this media presence, news presence, uh, that he views as really somewhat apart from who he actually is. Um, and he is never uh, overwhelmed uh, or takes any glory from uh, his public celebrity. Uh, he's extremely ambivalent in private uh, about getting too much attention, uh, being excessively honored. Um, and once the movement really takes full form in 1963, 1964, with Birmingham, with the March on Washington here. Um, King realizes that he is going to remain trapped in this public leadership role for the rest of his life. Now, right from those early weeks in Montgomery, when he's getting all of these death threats, King always privately lived with a very realistic expectation that sooner or later he's going to be killed. That is a constant reality of his life. I mean, he sees other people in the movement, Medgar Evers uh, in Mississippi, uh, being killed. Um, and so there's a, a, a quiet resignation uh, within him in that respect. Um, with, for instance, when he receives the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, when Time Magazine, you know, names him as, you know, Man of the Year for 1963, um, again and again, he feels like too much credit is being given to him individually and that too little attention is being given to the wider movement. Um, the greatest irony of all the FBI wiretapping of King and his associates is that what we see most powerfully in those telephone transcripts is how repeatedly self-critical and humble King always was. Uh, that he's you know, telling his closest advisors, oh, you know, what's one more plaque to put on the wall. Um, and whenever one goes back and rereads or re-listens to his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, he stresses in that too that he's accepting this simply as a representative 
simply as a trustee of the wider movement. And he gives all the money uh, to a variety of civil rights organizations. Um, King lived a very humble life in Atlanta. Uh, they don't own a home until 1965. Um, and even it was an extremely modest house. I was saying to Clark earlier when he asked me about Mrs. King, I remember circa 38, 39 years ago, sitting in the living room of, of that home with her, 234 Sunset Avenue Southwest. And she pointed at the, the front windows and said, oh, Martin wouldn't let me get that you know, window treatment. Um, and so while King you know, traveled uh, almost nonstop, um, he had no desire to benefit himself from the movement. Um, now, certainly by 64, he is finding this intensely public life uh, where he's completely swamped under requests to go here, demands to say that. It increasingly begins to take more and more of a personal toll on him. I mean, he doesn't like this role. He is the opposite of what we see in elected officials, presidential candidates, uh, someone like Re Reverend Jesse Jackson. These are people who want to see the red light on the TV camera and go towards it. And, and the remarkable dare say, unique thing about Dr. King is he had none of that desire. So he's not taking any internal emotional joy from his life experience. He feels burdened by this, that this is imposed upon him. As I said a little bit earlier, this to him is an entirely self-sacrificial undertaking. Now, when it becomes even more painful and difficult for him is after the movement recognizes its two great landmark victories, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and then the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Back in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the NAACP adopted this slogan, free by 63. Tremendously optimistic. The same sort of optimism that in Montgomery led the black community to think, oh, this bus boycott will just take a week or so, not a year. But come 63, 64, 65, the movement achieves everything that had been on the civil rights agenda as of 1954, 1955. These are tremendous victories. But in the wake of the Voting Rights Act in August of 65, all of a sudden, not just for King, but for most everyone in the movement, they have this rather sudden sense of the horizon, the political horizon, receding away from them as they realize that simply federal anti-discrimination, anti-segregation legislation does not bring about substantive black equality. 
Now, even at the 1963 march, which had the official title, the March for Jobs and Freedom, Bayard Rustin and, and Phil Randolph had a very well-developed economic social justice agenda. Now, that's not remembered very well in the most simple understandings of what the March on Washington was about. But by 1965-66, King is appreciating in a way that he just did not at all three or four years earlier that black America requires an economic freedom transformation that things like the 64 and 65 statutes didn't deal with whatsoever. And so from the fall of 65 going forward for the final two and a half years of his life, King is fundamentally, number one, focused on an economic change agenda that is well to the left of, say, where Senator Sanders is today. Similarly, starting a little bit in 65 and then really accelerating in 1967, King becomes an extremely harshly outspoken critic of the war in Vietnam. And it's crucial to emphasize that when King starts attacking the American role in Southeast Asia, this is still a popular Lyndon Johnson Democratic-led military endeavor. In 1967, there are very few uh, political opponents of the war in Vietnam uh, anywhere on the spectrum. Um, and so King is very consciously taking on political positions, both about radical economic change and about the war in Southeast Asia, that he knows are highly unpopular, will harm his reputation, will harm SCLC's fundraising. So this is someone who purposely, knowingly, is taking on roles that he realizes will harm himself individually, but he feels a prophetic obligation to speak what he believes is the truth, no matter how unpopular or reviled it will make him. Now, at the same time that he is transitioning from a figure of great regard to a figure who is reviled and harshly criticized even by black organizations like the NAA, like the Urban League, never mind the Johnson White House, at the same time that he's putting himself in these positions of, of unpopularity, he also is feeling that he's failing, that they're not making any headway with an economic change agenda, and that they're not making much headway uh, with halting the war in Southeast Asia. He's also becoming increasingly exhausted, uh, having for you know, eight, nine years by that point, been in this public role where he's speaking uh, on the average more than once a day, is rarely home, always on the road, and is becoming uh, run down both, both physically and emotionally. Now, Doc, I mean, all the people who worked with him 
who I first started meeting in 1979. Doc is what they would refer to him as. Doc had manic energy so that he could keep up this pace of life most of the time. But he also was subject to recurring depressions, hospitalizations for exhaustion. Um, I have an academic psychiatry colleague who's been uh, studying King for several years now, Nasir Gaemi of Tufts University Medical Center. And Nasir's background in looking at, at the stresses that, that Dr. King experienced and endured uh, have, have really, um, like Jim Cohn's theological work 35 years ago, has had a great, uh, a great impact on my own thinking and, and appreciation of, of King's suffering. And I think it's, it's incumbent uh, to stress that King does suffer intensely because of this role that he feels he has been dragooned into and cannot escape. And again, this is one of the sort of painful ironies of all the FBI electronic surveillance is that we see uh, in those conversations, we see how King is suffering and in some respects emotionally deteriorating in 1967, 1968, as this personal toll gets to be, to be worse and worse. Now, the greatest resource for understanding King is all of the sermons that he's delivering in those years after 1965 at Ebenezer Baptist, his home church back in Atlanta, where most of that congregation has known him literally since he was a child. And those sermons oftentimes are uh, expressly confessional, where King talks openly about how troubled he feels he is. Now, neither those recordings nor even transcripts of them have ever, regrettably, made it onto the web. You have to go to Atlanta or you have to go to Stanford, where the King Papers Project is, to, to really access those. But they are immensely moving. Um, and you realize, thanks to them, just how uh, aware King is about the distance between this public Martin Luther King and who he privately knows as himself. Um, and he is incredibly uncomfortable uh, with that discord, um, but he very, again and again, to his Ebenezer congregation, speaks of himself in terms of a biblical understanding, viewing himself as a sinner, um, but the lack, the lack of political success he's having in any fashion, in 67, 68, weighs on him very, very heavily. And by the last two or three months of his life, um, he is beginning to lose his temper, for example, with close friends, 
in ways that had never before occurred. Um, if one goes back and looks at what Dorothy Cotton, Andy Young, Bill Rutherford, the people closest to him, said immediately after his assassination, it's uh, really remarkable how they adopted an attitude that maybe it was best for Dr. King to die because it ended his suffering. Now, people today, when they celebrate the holiday, don't realize just how much emotional pain King suffered because of his role. Um, he spends that last two years of his life thinking that he's failed. In 67, 68, he's thinking that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, even those, they're, they're simply sort of totemic, symbolic victories. Um, he feels so sad about the lack of economic progress for black America uh, that that contributes uh, very significantly to his depression. Now, even back 35 plus years ago, when the King federal holiday is enacted, the real Martin Luther King would have been at best highly ambivalent about having a holiday honoring him by name rather than the wider movement. Ditto for the big monument here. I mean, we see so many times in those wiretapped phone conversations how he doesn't want to be receiving individual honors. He wants people to understand that the movement's strength depends on tens of thousands of people and that he is not setting an agenda or telling these people what to do. So, you know, if he could look down posthumously and see what's happened with regard to his name, his symbolism, he would be at best very uncomfortable with how he has been transformed into this huge international saint when he never believed that he was a saint and never believed that he was responsible individually for what had happened. He thought that the fact that he had ended up in this public role rather than say Ralph Abernathy, his closest Montgomery colleague, the fact that it was King, not Abernathy, not Fred, Fred Shuttlesworth in Birmingham, Doc always believed that this was sort of just an accident, that he got plucked into this role. So again and again, he feels a, a great distance, a great disconnect between the historical Martin Luther King and the real Martin Luther King. Um, but I think the, the point with which I should end here, looking at the clock, is, as I said 10 minutes or so ago, that the most remarkable, unique thing about Dr. King was that he never had any self-seeking, 
publicly aggrandizing agenda. I mean, I always have, for 35 years now, some discomfort with looking at other public figures because none of them are anywhere near as selfless as King was. And so when we realize that this person who's become arguably the most famous American of all time didn't want to be a public figure, hoped he could escape from it, came to realize only in 63, 64 that he was going to remain trapped in this role for, for the rest of his life, it is that fundamentally self-sacrificial self-understanding that Dr. King had of his life. I think that is, is the most important uh, thing that's incumbent upon us to, to remember and appreciate uh, every year on this holiday. Thank you very much. And with, with Clark uh, in charge of the clock, I'm, I'm happy to uh, respond to any, any you know, comments, questions. Sir. Mr. Garrow, first, thank you for honoring us by coming here today. And thank you for giving me a very different picture of Dr. King than I came into this room with. Oh. That, that, that really means a lot. Part of that, I've always been impressed when I grew up in the rural South that was in part of the last part of the Civil Rights Movement and uh, some close friends there and later in Atlanta who were part of the movement. Where did the power of nonviolence come from, if not from our stereotypical mastermind, Dr. King, who read Gandhi, who somehow convinced tens or hundreds of thousands of people? You're describing it was a spontaneous concept and, and, and created it. Where did it come from? It's for King. For King, it is, it is totally a, a biblical ethic of love, of Christian love. Um, Nonviolence as a label is something that comes from Gandhi, that comes from the tradition of the peace churches. But for King, his whole ethic um, and, and philosophy is intensely rooted in the Bible. Um, and what Bayard Rustin, Glenn Smiley, the people trained in the Gandhian tradition who come to Montgomery early in the boycott, what Bayard and Glenn give Doc is a new language uh, with which to articulate to a northern, largely white, not necessarily religious world, to articulate to this wider national community something that King is entirely a biblical Christian tradition. Um, but King is always savvy enough to want to present to the national populace something that is more academically learned than simply uh, what one would say at, at Ebenezer Church. The King, I said this in a different way earlier, the King one hears when he's preaching in a church is very different from a king speaking to an academic convention. Um, and it's, 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 it's those church sermons that I wish people could immerse themselves in rather than just his civil rights speeches. Cool. Okay.
we shall overcome first. Can you just repeat that, David? Oh, uh, sure. Who? Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> this, I mean, the song, i got to sort of switch mental categories here. Um, the origins of the song date back to protesting workers in Charleston, South Carolina in the 40s. Um, this is a part of my brain I haven't accessed recently. <laughs> and there, uh, there are enough lawyers in the, in the room, I, I don't doubt. There, there was some copyright litigation about four or five years ago, very unfortunate, uh, involving, we, involving We Shall Overcome and whether there, whether there was a valid copyright uh, that movement groups had to We Shall Overcome. Um, and so there's an extent, ex extensive record developed of different historical songs that evolved into We Shall Overcome. Um, but um, first in Charleston, then at, at the Highlander School in Tennessee, um, uh, with the Hortons in the late 40s, early 50s. It comes out of uh, more of a union background in the South and then really sort of gets adopted by the movement um, thanks to the sort of folk singing community of people like, like Pete Seeger and, and Guy Carawan um, who sort of come to the movement uh, by way of Highlander. But it's, there's a whole history to the song that is its own literature. Ma'am. It seems to me that if there was such a, a chasm between a public self as perceived by others and a private self, that it probably had a tremendous emotional toll on him. And how did he replenish himself enough to fulfill his public role? That's why over those final two to three years, he is deteriorating. Um, I long knew that by 1967-68, he had a fairly serious drinking problem. Um, we've learned in the last year or so, thanks to you know, additional documents, that the binge drinking ex certainly exists as of 1964. Um, and I, I referenced Nasir Gaemi, the Tufts uh, Medical Center psychiatrist earlier, um, and I'm purposely not using the phrase you'd all recognize, but thanks to Nasir's work, I've come to realize, you know, both that King does have this energy that we could accurately label as manic, that this is someone who can go and go, and that he does have these recurring depressive episodes. Now, I'm a historian, so I don't go any further than that. Um, but he is, he is um, the, the thing that's so hard to summarize in, in 11 words is the intensity of the daily demands upon him were so nonstop, so overwhelming. Um, and the physical, simply the physical burden of always being in a travel mode 
um, always being expected to be someplace else. Um, after you know, 10, 11, 12 years nonstop of that, um, it, it's taking an increasing toll. Ma'am. Uh, given that, what was his relationship with his wife, Mrs. King? Was she, must have been pretty difficult if she's at home with the young children. Um, as, as Dorothy, uh, who passed away a year and a half ago, Dorothy Cotton, uh, who knew him best, said very firmly multiple times, uh, Dr. King was a sexist. Dr. King believed the wife's role was to stay home and raise the kids. Um, now, I first knew back in 1979, um, you know, and have lived with this for 40 years now, um, that from 1963 forward, Dorothy was the most important person in his life. I mean, that's the, the record on that is super clear beyond dispute. Um, and this is someone who um, uh, I, I don't want to go too much into this in a church setting, um, but what this is someone who has you know dozens and dozens and dozens of additional relationships, um, and you know we look across the street, you know uh, that's not unique to Dr. King. Uh, <laughs> You know, compared with other you know historical figures in American public life, um, and it's why I, I you know whenever I sort of touch on this, however obliquely or not obliquely, it's it's why I always want to stress uh, how intensely King viewed himself as a sinner. Um, you know, he says in one of those sermons at Ebenezer in in. 67, 68, that he views him he, that, that he views himself as as having a Jekyll and Hyde problem. Um, now, part of his growing up as a young man at Ebenezer was knowing how his father behaved. Um, and again, that's not unique among churchmen uh, to King Senior. Um, but but King. To me, what's most important in that whole vein is how intensely self-critical he could be and how he so consciously thought of himself as a sinner. That's, that's, what, that's what I always want to go back to, to underscore. Okay, following up on Gail's question about the song, what about uh, the I Have a Dream? Famously, Mahalia Jackson said to him during the speech, Martin told about the dream, which means it suggests that he wasn't going to do it, one, and two, that he had done it before right. in some other fashion. Right. So could you just summarize Doc, that? Doc always speaks extemporaneously. I mean, the three or four times King is reading a text written by someone else doesn't sound at all like Martin Luther King. But so King had this uh, mental library repertoire that I think most preachers acquire, where he had all of these stories, quotations, a, 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 you know, a, literally a library is the way to think of it, in his head. Now, the first time that we know that he does the I Have a Dream peroration is in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, in I believe November. 1962, 
and it's almost the exact same ending of the speech. Um, my wonderful King colleague, Jason Miller at North Carolina State, um, discovered that about three or four years ago. And if, if you look on the web, uh, there's a great web page about, you know, they find this old reel-to-reel -reel recording at this church in Rocky Mount, and this is about four years ago. Lo and behold, it's sort of the same speech. Um, and then, as we knew for a good number of years, he did something very similar in Detroit, Michigan, uh, about two months previously in June of 63. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, the mountaintop speech in Memphis the night before he's killed, um, which people, you know, rightly listen to and think, oh, he's, he's realizing he's about to be killed. Uh, he did similar uh, recitations to that prior times as well. Um, and so it's simply, you know, the sermons are what we have the most recordings of. Um, but the, the, number of, the number of times King spoke uh, between 1955 and 1968 is, is thousands and thousands. Um, you know, and, not, and, and you know, the technology of that day was Bernard Lee carrying around one of those old Ewer, some of the folks in the audience are old enough to remember this, you know, a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. That's, that's how it was. But did he really prepare that speech? I was at the March on Washington, and my father said to me, it was about five in the day, I said, do you think, Daddy, that we should leave? Because it's been, we've been here, you know, we marched, and we're exhausted, hot, tired. He said, oh, no, Martin's going to get a great speech today. got to hear it. So people knew that he had perhaps prepared that. Well, I, th I, I think people in the black community by 63, I mean, probably like your dad, knew or had heard him at Vermont Avenue Baptist Church or wherever, um, knew that this was someone who rhetorically would rise to the occasion. Now, one of the rules for the march was that everybody had to submit an advanced text. That's how there's the whole controversy with John Lewis representing SNCC and the Kennedy administration folks wanting to edit out some of what John was going to say. So Doc had a two-page legal size typed up advance text, which bears fairly extensive relationship uh, to the, like, the first two-thirds of what he actually delivered, the bad, the bad check analogy. But as, as Clark touched on earlier, the final third of it is, is totally extemporaneous, and he goes over whatever I mean. I think everybody was limited to 10 minutes, 12 minutes. I forget the precise number. But he ends up going over his supposed allotted time by three minutes or whatever because of the extemporaneous part. Mark, the Ark of the Moral Universe comment, where did that come from? And, and can you give us some sort of background as to why it became such an important part of our understanding of King's view of I, I missed the first part of the Ark of the Moral Universe. Oh, that, okay. That's the that's that's March twenty fifth, sixty five at the at the Alabama Capitol after the Selma March. Um, that is see this is this is you know King had a much better literature background than I do. Um, that's coming from some nineteenth century figure, 
And I don't, I mean, I'm just not good at American, you know, being a history major, I didn't take many English classes. Um, so is it James Russell Lowell? King had, King had this method, which, which existed certainly by the time he was, he was in grad school for PH, his PhD, where he had all these three by five cards. I mean, Mrs. King still had these at the house 20 years ago, where Doc had all these three by five cards that he'd write things down on. Now, by 1963, everything that he had written down on these hundreds and hundreds of file cards, he has in his head. Um, so that is some phrase that he has acquired. It's, it's, not, it's not novel to him. We've got time for one last question, if it's quick, and then a response is quick. Uh, I read the Red Sky King autobiography and posed to Martin Luther King being a womanizer. Uh, um, uh, 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 Harry Belafonte was very, very close to Yeah, I mean, Harry, Harry was a very important figure for Doc privately behind the scenes. Um, you know, there was this whole world of New Yorkers. I mean, Harry, Mar Marion Logan, wonderful lady. Stan Levison, who's you know sort of, of a historical figure because he's the focal point of all the FBI stuff, Bayard Rustin. Um, you know, Doc has these sort of two big support worlds. One is you know Harry, Stan, Bayard, Harry Wachtel in New York, and then there's the whole Southern ministerial population: Shuttlesworth, Joe Lowry, uh, the people who are, are on the SCLC staff. Um, you know, there's some tension between that sort of New York world and the Atlanta world. Um, but they are two great sources of strength for, for Doc. And the New Yorkers uh, uh, are sort of historically underappreciated. Everybody Thank you. Please join me. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Yes, yes, yes. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Okay.